Holy Father, it's true. We haven't loved you more than this, because this is the moment we are at in all of our journeys. And you've never loved us less than today. In the matrix of that love, we come. May the teaching of Holy Scripture, the word you have for us, may we hear it clearly. Hide every voice, including mine, so that your voice might be preeminent when we read your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you what your answer to this would be. If you had to pick one of the Ten Commandments to be the number one, which one would you pick? Which of the Ten Commandments do you suppose and arises to the top as the premier commandment? I don't know, maybe it's not fair to even ask that question. Maybe that would be like asking a father who has ten kids, which one of these kids is your favorite? Which one of these kids is your greatest? And how could a dad answer that? Although it, it did happen once. Delightful story. In Brendan Manning's wonderful little book, Lion and Lamb, I want to read the story to you. It, it, it happened. He actually uh, heard the story from an old Dutch professor of his. He was uh, taking graduate studies at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. And the professor got up in front of class one day, told the story. So the first person here is that old Dutchman professor. And the professor speaking now. I'm one of 13 children. Think of that, Mom. 13 children. One day when I was playing in the street of our home in Ho- hometown in Holland, I got thirsty and came into the pantry of our house for a glass of water. It was around noon and my father had just come home from work to have lunch. He was sitting at the kitchen table with a neighbor. A door separated the kitchen from the pantry, and my father didn't know I was there, all right? A neighbor said to my father, Joseph, There's something I've wanted to ask you for a long time, but if it's too personal, just forget about it. But what's the question? Well, look, you have 13 children. Out of all of them, is there one that is your favorite? One you love more than all the others? The professor continued his story. I had my ear pressed against the door, hoping against hope that it would be me. That's easy, my father said. Sure, there's one I love more than all the others. That's Mary, the 12-year-old. She just got braces on her teeth and feels so awkward and embarrassed that she won't go out of the house anymore. Oh, but you you asked about my favorite. Uh, That's my 23-year-old Peter. His fiancée just broke their engagement, and he is desolate. Uh, but the, no, the one I really love the most is little Michael. He's totally uncoordinated and terrible in any sport he plays. The other kids on the street make fun of him. But you know, the apple of my eye is Susan, only 24, living in her own apartment and developing a drinking problem. I cry for Susan. But I guess of all the kids, and my father went on mentioning each of his 13 children by name. Isn't that precious? I mean, how could a father, ten kids, how are you going to pick one and say, this is my favorite, this is the greatest? And yet Jesus did, and because he did, we know now the answer to which of the commandments is the greatest. Open your Bible to find out, please, to the Gospel of St. Matthew, kind of our, our home base for this series, this season. The Gospel of Matthew, first book of the New Testament, 
Go to these words. This is fascinating, fascinating, fascinating. Matthew chapter 22. By the way, if you didn't bring a Bible, we've got a Bible right there in front of you. Grab the Pew Bible. It'll be the same translation as I have right here, the New King James Version. If you go to the Pew Bible, this is the page number. I promise we'll never go to this page again. The page is 666. All right? All right. You can find that one. Matthew chapter 22, please. Let's pick up the story. Pick up the story in verse 34. All right? Matthew 22, 34. Here we go. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Now hit the pause button right there because Pharisees and Sadducees. What do we have here? We have two opposing intellectual factions within the religious hierarchy of Jerusalem. They are forever at each other's throats over some matter of biblical interpretation. Envy, you got to admit, envy makes the strangest of bedfellows. And now the Pharisees have heard that the liberal Sadducees had just been silenced. By this young teacher, preacher, healer. And so the conservatives now say, it's our turn to have a whack. We'll get him where you guys missed it. All right. So that's what's happening here. They gathered together. Verse 34. Now, verse 35. Then one of them, one of the Pharisees, then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. A test. Now, by the way, when, when it says lawyer here, this is not a city slicker lawyer who has a storefront, you know, uh, downtown Jerusalem and he's dealing with civic law. No, 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 no. The mark is clear. This is a scribe. That means this is an ecclesiastical policy wonk of the highest degree who knows the divine codes and laws inside out. The man is brilliant. So they pick him. You, you, you do it for us. All right. So he's going to test Jesus. Verse 36, here he comes. So he says, he comes to Jesus and he says, teacher, teacher, rabbi, which is the great commandment of the law? Of all the commandments in the law, which one is the greatest? You just tell us, numero uno, which is the numero uno? We want to know. Not a bad question, by the way, for people who champion the Ten Commandments and believe that their divine mission in life is to draw the world's attention to the Ten by focusing on the Fourth Commandment like the Pharisees did. Because that's what they believe. These Pharisees who are absolutely convinced that they are the great defenders of the law of God. Hey, young rabbi, so which one? Which one of these? Which one of the Ten is the greatest? You see, they did have a... This is, this is not a straw man. This is not a paper tiger. They really did have a debate among the conservatives. These conservative leaders, because they're sure that there's got to be some sort of hierarchy at work here. And the way they have it figured is if we if, if two commandments ever come in con- conflict, the higher commandment demands our adherence. And we are therefore released from any obligation for the lower commandment. Problem with that is when you make the commandments to God the highest, you do very poor with the commandments to deal with interpersonal relationships. And that was where they struggled. So they're having a debate. And this aggressive lawyer is pushing. Listen, we want to know. We have our ideas. Where do you stand, sir? Whatever Jesus says, they're going to nail it. He knows it's a test. Jesus speaks. He's ready. Verse 37. Jesus said to the lawyer. Verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Ching! Well spoken, Master. By memory, on the spot. Jesus quotes the great Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Those words are repeated every morning and every evening by every devout Jew in the land. Those are the words that begin every morning and every evening's prayer services in the great temple in Jerusalem. Those are the word, words that are woven into the phylacteries, these little, these little tassels worn by the religious elite of Jerusalem. These are the words still spoken today in every synagogue in our land. Good choice, Jesus. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Well-spoken, Master. But then, in a surprise end run, Jesus nails his inquisitor by doing something no rabbi had heretofore ever done. And that he adds a line to the Shema. Watch this. Verse 39, and, oh, hey, lawyer, lawyer, stay right here. Don't you leave. I'm not through yet. And the second, listen to me. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This marks the first time that a rabbi intentionally joined together Deuteronomy Shema with that well-worn line from Leviticus. Thundering home the truth. And I love how one, one writer puts it. Obedience without love is as impossible as it is worthless. That point is so significant, I want us to get it before we forget it. Would you pull out your study guide, please? Obedience without love is as impossible as it is worthless. Pull out your study guide. It should be in your worship bulletin right now. Brand new study guide for today. Thank you, ushers. Let's uh, get this to our, our uh, eager worshipers as quickly as we can. Hold your hand up if you didn't get a study guide. You're going to want this one. There's a clincher. There's a clincher. That you're one going to have, and it will only be in the study guide. And while they're doing that, those of you watching on television, I'd like you to have the same study guide. You can go to our website. Let me put it on the screen for you. W, there it is, www.pmchurch.tv. Go to that website. This series is called Mercy Came a Running. And in this series, the, the, the teaching you're looking for for today, something more important than truth. When you see that title, right beside it is the word study guide. Click on there and you will have the same study guide that we're going to fill in together. All right. So you're getting it on your computer at home. You're getting it here in the back of the balcony as well. Good. Let's go. Let's fill it up, please. Obedience without love. Write that in, please. Obedience without love is as impossible as it is worthless. Ooh, that's heavy. Obedience without love is as impossible as it is worthless. Pick it up again. Let's read verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now notice verse 40. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I.e., jot this down, please. Every divinely inspired word or command ever written hangs on this twofold commandment to love our God supremely and to love our neighbor. Impartially. Get that down, please. All of it hangs on this. Keep your pen moving. For according to Jesus, hold on now, according to Jesus, love is more important than truth. Write that in. Love is more important than truth. Hey, I got to ask you, does that bother you? Huh? 
Does that bother you? That the Pharisees were right, that in fact there is an hierarchy to divine truth, and that the Pharisees were wrong, that in fact there is something more important than truth? Does that bother you? I mean, as a, as a community that perceives its divine modus operandi to be the champions of the Ten Commandments and the law of God, does it bother you that Jesus just kind of waves aside these Ten Commandments and he says, I want to tell you about something more important than truth. Should it bother us as a people who prize truth and value it above all else that Christ speaks a word and defines a reality that is even more important than those truths? Could it be, jot this down, could it be that in fact James, and by the way, this is James, the stepbrother of Jesus. Could it be that James, the stepbrother of Jesus, is right? That mercy, write it in, that mercy triumphs over judgment. Could it be that in the heart of even Almighty God Himself, there is a hierarchy of truth and a hierarchy of commandments so that there is something, jot this down, so that there is something more important, more important than truth. Does Jesus teach such a hierarchy of truths? The incontrovertible answer is just one page away. Just one page away. Turn, just go a little farther in Matthew. Just turn. It's only one page in your Bible. Trust me. Matthew 23. Turn the page. Matthew 23. Eight stinging woes pronounced upon the conservative religious leadership of his day. Eight woes that just like Samson brought the roof down on Jesus' head and destroyed him. He would be dead in three chapters and three days later. He's going to be dead. But this is it. He knows it's curtains now. Eight woes. We'll not note the eight. We'll only observe one of the woes. Woe number five. Jot this down. A single woe that proves an hierarchy. Right in the word hierarchy. An hierarchy of truth. As soon as you get that written in, we'll read it. Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Here he goes. This is woe number five. Woe! Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Hey, you remember the word hypocrites, don't you? Remember, it's that, it's that Greek word, hypocrites, a technical term describing an actor on the Greek stage of theater. The hypocrites the was one who would put a mask on his face or her face and pretend to be something she is not, pretends to be something he is not. When I'm a hypocrite, when you're a hypocrite, that's exactly what we're doing. We're wearing a mask and pretending what we are not. Woe to you. In other words, it's not a real complimentary word when Jesus is using it here. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe. Hold it right there. You know what the tithe is, don't you? That's the 10%. That's the 10% that God, through the ancient prophet Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, God says, that tithe belongs to me. Now, before you get all upset, let me, let me remind you what God is saying here. He says, hey, look, by virtue of being your creator, because I am your creator, by virtue of being your creator, I am asking you now for permission to become your CFO. You know what that stands for? Chief Financial Officer. I want to be the CFO of your life, but I need your permission. And the only way I know I have your permission is if you will return to me, you know what, I could ask for all ten-tenths of it, but I'm only going to ask for one-tenth. I want one-tenth of your increase. You return that to me because it belongs to me and not you. And when you do that, it will say to me, Oh, Lord, I cannot manage my life on my own. Would you please be my CFO? And I tell you what, my friend, I will stay with you every step of the way. And I will never let you down. You can count on me to the last dying breath. And I'm going to open, as it were, the very windows of heaven. And I'm going to empty a universe of blessings upon you if you will simply ask me 
to be CFO. Well, who could turn down an offer like that? You and I shouldn't. And the Pharisees didn't. In fact, the Pharisees went to the school that taught, if some is good, more must be better. And so they tied everything they could get their sanctimonious fingers on. Tie, 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 tie. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. Now, I need to tell you that in our home, Karen is the green thumb of our family. I mean, she just has this knack. She, she's a hallelujah. It's springtime and she, she surrounds our house. With the glorious colors of God's blossoms. One year she planted a little sprig of mint. Have you ever, have you ever planted a sprig of mint? You know what it's like when you, have you ever picked a mint leaf off and just crushed it, crushed it in your finger and then, can you smell it from there? Can't you smell it? Just the mint, mint, it's in our minds. Ah, the Pharisees love mint too, by the way. In fact, according to Jesus here, they, they tied three culinary Herbs, two of which are also medicinal. So, I mean, this is a big time. We're going to tithe all of these. <laughs> hey, let me ask you this. Was it a sin? Was it a sin to tithe their herbs? But of course not. It's not a sin. Nothing wrong with that. But you see the problem. God bless them. The scribes. They have concocted such an elaborate and artificial arrangement of Judaism's laws... And their premise is, we have a hierarchy of laws that are focusing on external, observable, and measurable behavior. Those are what count the most. What people can see me doing, what God can measure in terms of my response, that's number one. And Jesus says, what is wrong with this picture? Plenty, according to Christ. Look at this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Did you catch that? Write it down, would you please? You have omitted the weightier, the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy. Write it in, please. And faith. Mercy being our series. Now, isn't that something? Hey, come on, guys, just, just think with me. Apparently, in the mind of Christ, in the mind of Almighty God Himself, there are weightier matters in life and in law, weightier than tithing. The very word weightier, in fact, jot this down, the very word weightier clearly suggests an hierarchy. There's that word again. An hierarchy of values and truths and laws and duties. Does it not? There are some realities more important than truth itself. Certainly more important than even tithing. That's his point. Although Jesus is very clear, by the way. Hey, hey, time out. I'm not asking anybody to stop tithing. Please keep doing that. But I'm also making an appeal to you. That's Christ's point. Amazing. And by the way, what, what is it that Jesus determined are the weightier matters of the law? Did you see that? Justice. What, what, what's the next one? And mercy and, and faith. Yep. When Luke, Dr. Luke records these words, jot this down in, in Luke chapter 11, verse 42, he, he renders it justice and the love of God. You know what? This, this, this is all straight out, of, this is straight out of the Old Testament. Do you, remember that, do you remember that verse in Malachi chapter 6, verse 8? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? 
but to, how's it go? Do justly and to love mercy. Write it down. And to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We used to sing those words. Did you sing those words? Huh? Oh, come on, sing it with me. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Jesus, whispering to us now, he said, hey guys, that's what I've been trying to teach you. That even more important than truth is love. Love with all your heart for God. Love for all your life, for your neighbor. You know what? I'd rather have your love than your tithe. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'd be happy to have your tithe, but, and I'd be happy to have both. But if it's a choice, I'd rather have your love. I'd rather have your love than your Sabbath, though I want your Sabbath, but I'd prefer to have them both. I'd rather have your love than the 28 fundamental beliefs that I have told you. Though, don't misunderstand me. I, I, would, I want those 28 fundamental beliefs, but I need them both. If you have to choose between love and truth, I choose love. I want love from you. Whoa. If you can't give me both, I'd rather have your love. I really would. For upon supreme love to God and impartial love for our neighbor, hang, hang all the law, all the prophecies, all the doctrines, all the truths, all the commandments, all the time. Love, the supreme command. Nothing wrong with the, nothing wrong with good behavior, you understand. But how did Jesus put it? For you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Hey, listen, folks, what, what does love's hierarchy teach us? Let me share with you what love's hierarchy teaches, teaches us. First of all, oh, this is embarrassing. It spares us, actually, the embarrassment of becoming a community that is known for straining out the gnats, but keeps swallowing the camel. Take a look at verse 24. Right under verse 23. There's verse 24. Blind guides. He's talking to the leaders. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Now, this is a bit of stinging metaphor from the Lord Jesus. He knows it's over. So what he does is he goes to the dietary code. You remember? They have a dietary code. Clean and unclean foods. Leviticus chapter 11. And in the dietary code, Jesus isolates what is the smallest creature listed as forbidden to eat. And the smallest creature would be the gnat. You ever seen a gnat? There's an enlargement of a gnat. And then he says, let me find the largest, the largest mammal that is forbidden as unclean. And what's he come up with? The dromedary, better known as the camel. Now here comes the biting metaphor. Because, you see, it's based on the Pharisees' practice to filter their drinks, to avoid the ingestion of any little, tiny, unclean insect. Strict Jews would take a piece of gauze or linen and place it over their cups and would strain their wine, their vinegar, other potable liquids. And so here they are. You should try to picture this. Here they are now, the Pharisees, sipping sanctimoniously from their cups, Net filtered to the max, and all the while inside that cup, they're just getting ready to swallow it. Here comes the smelly, splish splashing of a hairy, big lip, humpback dromedary, better known as a camel. Isn't that a great picture? <laughs> 
they got the gnat out, but they're just, they, they just tilt it back and the camel goes inside. They choke on the camel. They strain that little tiny net. <laughs> cheers. And then they swallow a camel. Do you get the biting irony of what Jesus has just said? Oh, mercy. You blind hypocrites. You major in the minors and you minor in the majors. That's your problem. <laughs> you strain out a net, but you swallow a camel. You tithe your pennies, but you ignore your neighbors. You say you love the truth, but you never live the truth. What is the truth? Oh, what did he say? For you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then First John 4 comes along and says, oh, by the way, by the way, if anyone says I love God, yet hates his brother. He is a liar. Why? Because for anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Ladies and gentlemen, we can preach on satellite. We can preach in satellite seminars till we are blue in the face. But if we omit the weightier matters of the law. Jesus is absolutely clear. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross sea and land to make a single convert, and you make the new convert twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Have mercy. We can boast to the nation of our nationally ranked university. We have appeared. Wow. We have appeared in U.S. News and World Report, and we're so hoarse telling everybody. But if in the process... Of our becoming horse, extolling ourselves, we have omitted the weightier matters of the law. I'm telling you what. Woe, Jesus is right. Woe to you, scribes and hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but inside they're full of the bones of the dead and all kinds of filled. Yuck! Jesus' somber warning is clear. My friends, if this community of faith does not yet learn and practice love's hierarchy, the demise of our community and the disintegration of our faith are assured because we will choke to death on a camel. We will choke to death on a camel. What does love's hierarchy teach us? Jot it down. First, it teaches us. Write this down, please. It spares us of the embarrassment of becoming a community that majors in the minors... And minors in the majors. And then number two, the, the other lesson. Number two, secondly, it teaches us that the value of people transcends the virtue of duty. There's nothing wrong with our duty to tithe or any other duty for that matter. But more important than the virtue of duty is the value of people. I just found this this last week. I want to share it with you. A hundred years ago, these words were written. Very perceptive. Put it on the screen. You'll have to fill it in. Cleanliness and order are Christian duties. Write that down. I agree that's a duty. You agree that's a duty. Okay? Cleanliness... And order our Christian duties, yet, keep reading, yet even these may be carried too far and made the one essential, while matters of greater importance are neglected. Whoa. Hold on, keep reading. Those who neglect the interests of the children. You see those words, uh, those two words, the children? Those can be the children by age, or they can be children when it comes to faith. The young in the faith. 
Those, put, put it back, back, please. Those who neglect the interests of the children for these considerations are tithing the mint and cumin. While they neglect the weightier manners of the law, justice, mercy, and the love of God. End quote. Did you, did you catch that? Did you get it? It might take a little bit of brooding to sink in. Even Christian duty, come on guys, even Christian duty can be carried too far and made the one essential that everybody has to conform to to prove that we are orthodox. Please. I'm aware of some Christian communities that proudly identify themselves by emphasizing certain external behaviors and duties as essentials and proof that they are loyal to God. Can't say that for the rest of you, but we are. Look at this. It's measurable. It's observable. It's noticeable. And that's proof. How sad. It's the way the Pharisees lived. How about us? I want you to think about this community of faith right here. Are there some duties here? That we are carrying too far. Pushing some behaviors too hard. All to prove our orthodoxy and holiness like the Pharisees. And yet all the while, we are not loving to each other. We're not loving to each other. We're not loving to our neighbors. And therefore, we are not loving to God. For if, in the name of heaven, if you can't love somebody standing in front of your nose, how can you possibly love a God you have never seen in your life? Don't give me this, oh, I love God. It's just him I'm not sure about. It's just her I'm not convinced about. Impossible. You can't do it. You say, oh, Lord, when did, wait, when did we see you naked? When did we see you hungry? We never saw you sick. We never knew you were in jail. We never saw you. And Jesus says, you know what? Listen to me carefully. Because you refuse to do it to the least of these, my children 12 miles up this road, you didn't do it to me. Whoa. Oh, Lord, but you know what my problem is? I'm not even sure who's my neighbor anymore. Who is my neighbor? There was a man once who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among thieves. And the religiously correct left him there until a rejected and outcast Samaritan came by. Want to know who the neighbor is in that story? Go thou and do likewise. Oh, the Pharisees. Jesus is painfully clear, is he not? That there are weightier matters in the divine economy in which the value of people transcends the virtue of duty. He's teaching, his teaching is clear. Jot this down, please. His teaching is clear. The great commandment transcends the ten commandments, for they must hang upon it and not it upon them. The cross of Christ declares that truth. Surely, my friends, it is at Calvary. That we see the truth that mercy triumphs over judgment. Surely at the cross, you see there on the screen, surely the transcendence of self-sacrificing love is exalted over self-centered duty. You know, maybe that's our problem. Maybe we don't go to the cross enough. Maybe we don't, maybe we don't look full into His wonderful face while He's hanging there. Because hanging there is everything. 
All the law and the prophets hang on the great commandment who was crucified that day when mercy came a-running. We need to go to the cross a lot more than we do, don't we? We're not going to the cross enough. That's our problem. Sharpening our swords and whetting our blades. We need to go to the cross. I want to end with a story. Incredible story. C.S. Lewis. Brilliant apologist. Christian apologist of the last century. Did you know this? C.S. Lewis learned about Seventh-day Adventists. True story. I read it in a book given to me entitled Letters to an American Lady. Sometime after Lewis died in November of 1963, he died on the same day that uh, President Kennedy was assassinated. Sometime after Lewis died, an American woman came forward and she went to a publisher. She says, I got some letters. Who are they from? They're from C.S. Lewis. Oh, really? He wrote you? Yeah, he wrote me. For 13 years, we have carried on correspondence. 13 years prior to his death, he gets this letter from across the pond, as the British refer to it, and it's from an American lady. And she says, you know, I really, I, I enjoy your book, this, this last book I read. And, and after she extols the book, then she says, I, I'm having a little challenge. Can you help me? And so, like the gracious Christian gentleman that he was, he wrote her back. Well, she got his letter and she wrote him back. And he got her letter and he eventually wrote her back and back and back and back. As far as we know, they never met face to face. There is not a shred of romance in these letters. We have all of Lewis's letters. We don't have hers, you understand, because she wrote to him and they're gone. But we have C.S. Lewis's, this brilliant mind, his letters. And it's from one of those letters, two of them actually, that I discovered he found out about Seventh-day Adventists. I want to share this with you. Apparently, here's what's happened as far as I can put it together. She, she, she writes and asks him, what do you know about Seventh-day Adventists? This brilliant mind responds, you know, I, I really don't know that much. Then she writes him back and describes an event that happened to her with a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And I am so grateful to God that it was a very positive moment. She describes what happened with that Adventist in America. And then he writes back to her, listen to what this mind, the cutting edge of Christianity in the 20th century, listen to what he observed. What you say about the seven-day Adventists interests me extremely now. <laughs> if they have so much charity, there must be something very right about them. Let me put that on the screen for you. What you say about... And I love the way he gets our name wrong. What you say about the seven-day Adventists. You know what? That's, that's the kind of Adventist we really ought to be. This Being an Adventist only on the seventh day is crazy. We ought to be seven-day Adventists, don't you think? Seven days a week. What you say about the seven-day Adventists interests me extremely. If they have so much charity, write that down. If they have so much love, there must be something very right about this people. Isn't that amazing? If they have so much love, there must be something very right about them. Hey, listen, friend. Hey, hey, you. You want to get the attention of your world where you live? 
Want to get the attention of your world? Then live out the hierarchy of Jesus. For it is more than clear, is it not, that there is something more important than truth? For if you have that much love, there must be something very right about you. Amen. And amen. Let us pray. Oh, God. There must be something very right about Jesus. That's the truth. He's the one who teaches us this truth. He says everything, every shred of revelation and inspiration hangs on the hierarchy of love's transcendence over even duty, over even truth. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, God, please. That we might become the people that this 20th century mind suggested must be something very right about those people. If they have that much love, there must be something very right. Oh God, let it be right about this parish and this campus and this church for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let all the people say... Amen and amen.